This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Ryman Healthcare. I'm Dougal Stevenson. This week, I look at a visit to Dunedin by Henry Morton Stanley. Judy Southworth reports on early coach travel. Gregor Campbell tells us about the history of the Hillside Workshop. And Bill Southworth interviews the last family member of printer's John McIndoe. That 19th century literary eminences visited Dunedin, we've mentioned before, Mark Twain and Anthony Trollope. Their visits were well reported, their wit smarted. A young Rudyard Kipling also came by. His fleeting visit in 1891 coincided with that of the Salvation Army's General Booth. The Otago Daily Times positively drooled over Booth and reported the General's meetings extensively. The paper virtually ignored Kipling. Kipling and Booth then sailed for Australia on the SS Talune. Kipling noted that the general beat a tambourine in the face of the singing, weeping and praying crowd who had come to see him off. It was a rough passage to Melbourne. To borrow from William Pember Reeve's contemporary poem, New Zealand, they were girt about with surges and winds of the masterless deep whose tumult uprouses and urges. With Booth's beating tambourine well used to subduing nature's urges and surges, they made landfall. A year later, another literary eminence who'd initiated what would become a tradition of first-person adventure journalism came to Dunedin, Henry Morton Stanley. Mark Twain, applauding Stanley's courage in the American Civil War, called him a fellow Missourian, which Stanley most certainly was not. Nor was he a Stanley. Born in northeast Wales, he was christened John, illegitimate, bastard written unequivocally on his birth certificate, as was the custom. He would grow into a many-dimensioned character. His birth, the passage to America, his adopting the name Stanley. He served on both sides of the Civil War and honed his reporting skills with dispatches from that war, from the American Indian Wars, and even the British invasion of Abyssinia. His ambition to find a place in the top echelon of American journalism found him encouraging the impetuous enfant terrible of publishing James Gordon Bennett, Jr., editor-owner of the New York Herald, to back an expedition Stanley would lead to find Britain's apparently missing nationally adored missionary explorer, and in so doing, scoop the British correspondence and coin the immortal greeting, Dr. Livingston, I presume. All this is well documented in journals and books, particularly Stanley's bestseller, its title, a proclamation typical of the man, How I Found Livingston. Indeed, most of Stanley's heroic exploits would become well-known to the world. He'd see to that. In February 1892, the 51-year-old master of repeated overpaintings and varnishings of his self-portrait, the master of self-publicity, the self-made man, enthralled audiences at Dunedin's Garrison Hall. They were spellbound, and the Otago Daily Times was suitably impressed. When the curtain rose, every inch of the building was occupied. In the evening, Mr. Stanley met a crowded and enthusiastic audience of adults 
and delivered with marked success a really magnificent lecture. If there is still doubt in the mind of anyone in Dunedin as to the sterling ability of the great explorer as lecturer, it cannot be shared by those who heard his farewell address. The infatuated times continued. After referring briefly to the magnitude of the explorations, Mr Stanley gave probably the finest passage in his lectures, a description of the dark forest of equatorial Africa. Nothing short of an actual transcription of the actual language used could convey an adequate idea of the consummate skill with which this deeply interesting portion of the subject was given. The perilous march through the forest, in tempests, rain and darkness, beset by fierce and crafty foes, stricken by famine, and within its ranks, thinned by pestilence, was a truly terrible record. Don't you wish you'd been there? Stanley's ruthlessness, his ability to reinvent himself, to exhaust his critics and to amass credit where little was due, were not the concerns of the Otago Daily Times reporter in 1892. He was not disposed to stand aside and temper his enthusiasm for the adventure journalist with any hard questions or any in-depth examination that would satisfy today's ODT readers. Much has been written of Stanley and his personal devils, but his achievements were remarkable. Henry Morton Stanley began a tradition of first-person adventure journalism. His reportage defined his era. Stanley told of darkest Africa, and the stories opened the floodgates to the European exploration of Africa and the infamous scramble for that benighted continent's territory. My thanks to Papers Past and authors Richard Hall and Martin Dugard and Jeff Harford. In 1988, the New Zealand Federation of Country Women's Institute produced a collection of material from pioneer women. First published in 1940 to mark the New Zealand centenary, it captured history through the eyes of ordinary women through diaries, letters and tales handed down. The Otago section included a piece by J.M. Buchanan on her experiences of coach travel. Judy Southworth reads her recollections. In the 1860s, there was an excellent service of coaches owned by Cobb & Co. coaches left and eaten daily by the main north and south roads. The distance covered each day was well over 70 miles. Breakfast at 5am was the beginning of the first journey alone for three little sisters who set off to spend a happy summer holiday with an eldest sister in her home on the banks of the Molyneux River. We now call this the Clutha River. Our own road down the glen joined the south road a mile or so out of Dunedin, and we had therefore no share in the bustle and importance of the daily start from the office in town. We had not long to wait before the coach appeared on the crest of the hill and rattled down towards us. Goodbyes were said and last instructions given as the big coach pulled up with a swing and stood heaving and swaying on its great leather springs, while the harness creaked and clattered as the six big greys shook it, stamping with impatience at the delay. We were soon in the places reserved for us at the back of the coach, where we would be well protected from the weather by big leather curtains on this fine morning rolled up, so that we might enjoy the pleasant country through which we drove. Besides the seats of honour on the box, were four or more seats set across the interior, just hard wooden seats, with very little padding and a wide leather strap for a back. 
The coaches were generally overflowing with diggers, usually very cheerful, confident that they were on their way to make their fortunes, or still more cheerful, with fortunes in their pockets on their way to town to spend them. The so-called hotels along the road were innumerable. A brief stop at each enabled passengers to make considerable additions to their already liberal supply of liquid refreshments till the drivers all aboard brought them tumbling out of the bar. The changing of the horses meant a slightly longer stay, but it was amazing how quickly it was effected. One minute the fresh horses would be quietly standing in the yard while the team they were to relieve was led away to the stables. Next minute, the grooms had adjusted the traces and with a plunge or two, the horses were off. The number of horses in use by Cobb and Co. must have been enormous and the quality was outstanding. Beautiful greys were almost always reserved for the entrance into town and the procession of the gold escort was indeed a sight never to be forgotten. Armed outriders led and followed the special coach bringing in the gold and there was frequently a prisoner or two in which case the armed guard on the box and riding alongside would be considerably increased. All that, however, was a thing of the past when, after my marriage, I travelled by coach, this time in the Maniototo Plain. The railway that was eventually to stretch from one end of the island to the other could now be used to shorten distances, and our coach journey began at Palmerston, then followed up the Shag River to Naseby, one day's journey. The driver, appreciating my husband's eye for a horse, always kept the box seat for us, and his fund of yarns was inexhaustible, so that on many a drowsy summer afternoon, their voices seemed to me to grow fainter and fainter as the coach wound up the sunny side of the range. But at the top, the fresh breeze in one's face was like a meeting with an old friend, and with a crack of a long whip and a rattle of loose swingle trees, away we would go, down the long cutting and across the riverbed, till in the cool dusk, sweet with the scent of flax blossom and dewy tussock, we pulled up at the wayside hotel, where we changed horses for the last time that day. A shortcut home branched off from the main road here, and we sometimes left the coach and stopped for a night at this little inn, the kindly landlady thinking nothing of trouble as long as she made us comfortable. On one occasion, when my husband was recovering from rheumatic fever, a journey by coach was out of the question, until an ingenious friend thought of a plan that enabled him to travel with comparative ease. A four-wheeled buggy was found, the back seat taken off, leaving the front seat unaltered. Behind it was the open tray, like a lorry. On this were laid two sacks filled with chaff, and on them was placed a big, comfortable armchair, back-to-back with the front seat, to which it was securely fastened. The chair, spread with lots of rugs and blankets, made a comfortable seat on which the invalid travelled in two days as far as Shag Valley Station, thence to Palmerston and on to Dunedin by train. This is Judy Southworth. The recent major government grant to the Hillside Railway Workshops stimulated Gregor Campbell to look into the history of this Dunedin industrial icon. As soon as the provincial government of Otago decided that it must build a railway to Port Chalmers and further north, it was realised that it would also need to build the workshops to build and maintain that railway. The candidates for workshop sites in 1873 were two, Dunedin and Port Chalmers, although Green Island had also been proposed. Dunedin was decided upon 
and the advertisements for contractors to reclaim Muscle Bay, where Port Chalmers School now stands, were withdrawn. The Dunedin site for the workshops was initially and temporarily that of the future railway station, the site which became the Otago Settlers Museum, now Toitu. The site of the Caledonian Sports Ground was suggested for a permanent building and in January 1874, a site near the late Captain Cargill's house, Hillside, was chosen. It was bought from the church authorities and building was commenced. An engine and general engineering shop, a carriage shop, a carriage shed and yards for coal and wood. At present, the general repairing shop is the only building for which tenders are being called. This shop is to consist of an irregular building 193 feet in length by an extreme width of 78 feet and 6 inches. It will contain an office, store, joiner's shop, boiler and engine house, brass foundry, smithy and fitter's shops. The machinery, in addition to the usual smaller tools and appliances, will consist of a punching machine, saw bench, lathe, drills, shaping machine, screwing machine, general joiner, saw sharpening machine and planing machine. The shop will be fitted up with an engine pit to take in three engines at a time. In 1879, the hillside workshops were decided on as the main ones for the South Island, mostly due to Dunedin's industrial base. Christchurch interests were not pleased. In 1897, Hillside produced its first steam locomotive, the WA-165, which worked for the railways for 64 years and still survives 124 years later at the Gisborne City Vintage Railway. The men of the workshops responded immediately to the Empire's call to the colours in 1914. Eight men immediately enlisted, and Hillside and the other two New Zealand workshops capable of building locomotives readied themselves for war work. Of the men from the workshops who served, 23 did not return, and their names can be found on the Roll of Honour on Hillside Road. Just before the end of the Great War, an unusual find was recorded. While overhauling a passenger carriage, a watch pendant was found. Its inscription enabled it to be restored to its owner, Reverend D.J. Murray of Lower Hutt, who had had it wrenched off its chain in 1883. It dropped between the inner and outer layers of the carriage walls and was thought gone forever. The delight of Mr. Murray at receiving his property, it was reported, was almost equaled by the pleasure afforded to its finder in being able to restore it. The 1918 armistice was celebrated in the workshops as in the rest of the city, and in June next year, the official outbreak of peace was celebrated as fully. The men of Hillside grabbed flags and musical instruments and marched to the Octagon to celebrate the signing of the Versailles Treaty. In 1920, the railway employees went on strike, and the department asked for Hillside men who could drive a train to enlist as strike breakers. One man answered the call. The hillside workers had already had meetings to demand a response to the rising cost of living. The later career of the would-be strikebreaker is not recorded. 1926 saw an overhaul in the workshop's equipment to keep pace with industrial progress, and reconstruction continued until the effects of the Great Depression began to be felt, men being laid off in 1930 as part of the government's policy of cost-cutting and retrenchment. The investment in infrastructure by the Savage Labour government brought new business to the workshops and, of course, a new war meant plenty of work to be done. It also meant the sacrifice 
of 25 hillside men who did not return. A pair of polished granite boards with names engraved in gold were unveiled on a rainy day in July 1949. The 50s saw the change from steam power to diesel and also the increasing threat to rail freight posed by the motor vehicle, a threat held back by the Transport Licensing Act of 1931 but made real by the Act's abolition in 1983. This coincided with the corporatising of the New Zealand railway system, which meant closing unprofitable branch lines and the laying off of staff. After privatising of the rail industry, part of Hillside was sold to the Australian company Bradken in 2012 and the rest was closed and workers laid off. In 2019, Hillside received investment and an upgrade to service Kiwi Rail's locos and rolling stock and, as listeners may be aware, the May 2021 budget included an $85 million investment for the building of 1,500 wagons for Kiwi Rail. I'm Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. The Dunedin printing firm of John McIndoe had a reputation for being one of the best book publishers in the country. It had an eye for design and typography, and many well-known writers had their books printed there. Bill Southworth prepared this background on the company and then interviewed Bill, the last McIndoe, to manage the company. John McIndoe was born in Scotland and as a small child came to New Zealand with his parents in 1859. He was apprenticed as a compositor for five years and soon gained a reputation for superior quality of his workmanship. In fact, it was said his was some of the best typographical designing seen in the colony. In 1900, McIndoe set up on his own account as John McIndoe, printer and bookbinder, soon moving to premises in Vogel Street. His business of jobbing printing for clients like the DCC and bookbinding grew steadily. One of his sons was the plastic surgeon Archibald McIndoe. His other sons and grandsons continued to run the firm long after his death. Under their tutelage, McIndoe's became one of New Zealand's best publishers, showing an awareness for literature and social issues. The last McIndoe to manage the company was Bill, who headed up the company in the mid-1980s. Now 92 years old, he began his career as a naval officer in the British Navy. When I came home uh, from there, I joined the, uh, rejoined the Royal New Zealand Navy and served in uh, frigates, uh, the Bologna, the cruiser, and frigates in the Korean War as a navigating officer. When I came out of the service, the Navy, uh, on my return from the Korean War and retired, uh, I joined the company and I became an apprentice, an adult apprentice, and I served three years uh, in that capacity. So what was it like being the boss's son and an apprentice at that age? It was, it was all right. Um, they treated me with respect and in a very friendly way. A great bunch of people. So it was very much a, a family uh, of people working together, was it? Yes. Yes, I was uh, not considered anything special in the company because I was the boss's son. And, of course, my brother was also there, so they'd become accustomed to him. That was uh, John, another John McIndoe, John Le- Hector McIndoe, known as Jock. And was he younger or older? Older than me, about four years older. Right. Now, as a new chum, can you recall any mistakes you made or anything that was a little bit embarrassing at the time? 
Well, that question is a bit like when you go yachting. You forget all the bad days, you only remember the good days. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> your, your memories are all good ones then? <laughs> yeah, all good ones. Now, when you went there, the company had developed or into uh, book publishing. Can you tell me about that? The, 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 just the, quickly the process of actually publishing a book. My brother was really the publisher. Uh, I was more on the manufacturing and printing side. But, of course, I had a lot to do with the printing of the book itself, the physical printing. Um, now, let me try and go through it. Um, a manuscript is accepted, either by request, you ask somebody to, to write a book, or you somebody presents a book and you say, that looks a manuscript and that looks pretty good. Um, and the first thing to do is to edit it. And this is a painstaking job where every word has to be gone through to see if it makes sense, if the words aren't repeated, um, they're spelt correctly, and you must have a clean copy so that it's typed out on clean paper with no errors. Because when you come to typesetting on a hot metal setting machine, the, those people can't muck about. They've got to be busy setting and not worrying about any errors. We purchased and installed a, an intertype machine, which was a hot metal setting, and it was done with a keyboard, uh, and the operator would sit in front of this very big machine, um, having installed the correct typeface, and it came out as a slug, that is a piece of um, type metal cast. It was then assembled by the compositors and a proof was taken off the type, uh, a rough proof, which was read um, by the author and corrected. They weren't allowed to make too many corrections. No changes. Errors, yes, no changes. So then um, you got round to printing the book. You printed over the years some very famous people like James K. Baxter, Ruth Dallas, folk like that. Yes. These, of course, were, were great people to deal with. Uh, usually some of them were rather awkward. <laughs> <laughs> was someone like Baxter always sober when you talked to him? Oh, yes. <laughs> sober enough. <laughs> yeah. And eventually you took over some of the work uh, for the uh, Otago University Press for a while. Is yes, that right? we became the university printers. We printed the calendar, which oh, was the first tome. The prospectus for the year for the university. The, uh, the calendar, yeah. they laid out the, who was um, the professors, what the classes, the um, courses were, and also it, it was the governing manuscript for the running of the university. And um, God forgive us if we ever made an error in that. Do you have a personal favourite, some book you remember that you published that you liked more than the others? Yes. We, we did a, um, a book on the geology of New Zealand, um, which was a very complex thing to print because it was all in lots of different colours to illustrate different types of, um, of rock and soil conditions. And that was one of my favourites. A very difficult printing job, I might add. Right. So you were geared up for complex colour printing as well? Yes. Now, I guess the demand for books has diminished somewhat since you, since you retired. 
And we now live in an electronic age. There are those who believe that books will gradually fade away. Do you think that's true? No. I think they're tremendous entertainment for people to sit down and read a book. <laughs> uh, and most people own a number of books. Bill McIndoe retired 30 years ago and with his wife Margaret has travelled much of the New Zealand coast and the Pacific in their various yachts, including one two-year voyage which took them to Fiji, New Caledonia, Vanuatu and around the Australian coast. The couple, now both in their 90s, have only just decided to call it a day so far as yachting is concerned. This is Bill Southworth reporting. This program, which will be repeated on Sunday at 7 p.m., is kindly sponsored by Ryman Healthcare and brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. Ryman Healthcare prides itself on offering some of the most resident-friendly terms in New Zealand. Ryman Healthcare's Francis Hodgkins and Yvette Williams Retirement Villages in Dunedin offer the very best of retirement living and care. For more information and to discuss your retirement living options, please phone Kate on 455-7936. Ryman Healthcare, supporting Southern Heritage Trust and the Heritage Matters Programme. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.